0: A cowardly lion asks a mysterious wizard for a heart because he wants courage. There you go. You're awake. It's good. Courage is a high-held attribute, isn't it? And it's not really hard to understand why. It's a proactive trait. Courage takes initiative. Courageous people make a difference while fearful people seem to just slide through life. Courage is rewarded with medals and recognition while fear is disregarded or even punished. But this morning, I want to ask you to consider something that might change your conception of courage. I believe that courage is ultimately relational. Here's what I mean. In the spring of 1859, a French acrobat, Charles Blondin, did something that no one else had ever done. He took a two inch thick rope, 1,300 feet long. He tied one end to an oak tree and the other end around a rock, and he walked across Niagara Falls. And just for a bit of theatrics, when he got to the middle, he popped the cork on a bottle of French wine, sat down, and had a few sips. Over 100,000 people watched in terror, but he made it no problem. In the coming weeks, more theatrics followed. Somersaults, backflips, took out a piece of cake and a bottle of champagne. He even took a stovetop out with some kitchen utensils, cooked and ate an omelet. But the most remarkable stunt of all involved his manager, Harry Colcord, Colcord had been managing Blondin for the past year. He publicized his work, seen every walk, celebrated every victory, and so by August, Blondin suggested a new idea. He would carry Colcord on his back. The date was set, the posters were hung, the crowd assembled, the rope was tested, the waters were foaming beneath, spray from the rising mist dripped off of the rope. Before his feet touched the rope, Here's what Blondin said to his slightly nervous manager. He said, look up, Harry, you are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Be a part of me, body, mind, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt any balancing yourself. Be a part of me. They made it, no problem. Courage is ultimately relational. See, by that point in his career, Blondin wasn't trusting in his own courage, he was trusting in his skill, a skill that he had developed over dozens of trips with tougher obstacles and many more variables. But Colcord's trip, well, that was a little different experience. It required something that Blondin didn't have to think about anymore. Do I really believe that he can make it? Can I really put my life in his hands? Maybe the most provocative question of all, if it came down to it, would he save me or himself? And that's really the question about God, isn't it? We believe God is great, that's awesome, but is he also good? Maybe when it comes down to it, can I really trust him with my life? So this is the sixth week in a seven-week series called Vintage Faith. Seven weeks looking at seven examples of a faithful life. And I hope this series thus far has challenged you to think about faith, not just from a positional angle, like what does it mean, how do I get it, what do I think about it, but a practical one. Can I really trust the God of the universe with my life day to day? So before we wrap up next week, we've got just one more story. Our text this morning tells the story of Rahab. Of all the heroes in Hebrews chapter 11, I think Rahab's story is the most unlikely, and that's why I love it. Rahab shows remarkable courage in the face of fear. But beyond that, Rahab teaches us that when it comes to faith, courage is not knowing what to do. Courage is deciding who you can trust. And so there's one verse in Hebrews 11. It's not going to be up on the screens. I'm just going to read it to you. One verse about Rahab by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies courage is not knowing what to do it's deciding who you can trust let me pray Father, we thank you for all these examples in Hebrews 11. And as we consider our own lives, the places where we are fearful and cowardly, Father, will you waken us up inside, give us courage based on who you are. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump into Rahab's story a little bit, we've got to get our bearings. Last week, we left off with Moses leading his people out of Egypt. Now, this is the undisputed high point in Israel's history. After generations of slavery in Egypt, God's people are finally free. And so let's summarize what happens next. They receive God's law, the Ten Commandments, and they totally disregard it. And so they have to wander the desert for 40 years. Then Moses dies, a dignifying death. The last thing the text says about Moses and his story is that his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Great words. Then the people mourn for 30 days, and then they have to move on. They have to keep going. Go where? To the land that God promised them. So I'm going to read to you from Joshua chapter 1. Don't turn there. Just listen for a moment. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I also promised to Moses. Now, this is great news, right? Like, finally, after 40 years of wandering around in the desert, we're ready to go home, this beautiful land that God has promised us. There's one thing in the way. A city fortress called Jericho, and they are scared spitless. And so God's people camp out for three days. The promised land, the centuries-old dream. God's people are camped just east of the Jordan River, five miles outside Jericho. That's like from here to Glen Oak High School. Unless you think this is going to be a blowout... Remember, God's people are a nation of migrants. They're wanderers, they're pilgrims. They've been wandering the desert for 40 years. They're not weaponized, they have no strategy. They've been basically leaderless until now, they're intimidated. They have no distinct advantage, no upper hand, no contingency plans if things go south. This is basically the equivalent of a peewee football team with a first-time head coach and no playbook under the big lights. And all of this set the stage for Rahab's story. Join me in Joshua chapter 2. So you can turn there in your Bible, flip there on your phone, or you can follow along on the screens. Just a quick spoiler alert for you. The very first act of courage in the new season or in this new promised land comes from a very unexpected person in a very unexpected place. And I think you'll see that courage isn't knowing what to do. It's deciding who to trust. So Joshua chapter 2. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 4. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. 3,000 people called Jericho home. Most of them worked outside the city and came home at night. Two things you need to know about Jericho. First, it was imposing. Located where it was, if you were coming eastward into the Jordan Valley, it was the first city that you were going to hit, and it was parked right along the north south trade routes. So if you wanted to go further eastward, northward, or southward, you had to go through Jericho first. It was incredibly strategic. Its outer wall was six feet thick. Its inner wall, 12 feet thick. If a city could be a football player, Jericho is the middle linebacker, daring people to get through. But the second thing you need to know about Jericho is its incredibly pleasure-oriented Arranged around a vast grove of palm trees, the city was beautiful. The word Jericho actually means fragrant, and so it wouldn't be out of place to think about Jericho like an ancient Near Eastern Las Vegas, a place where you could go and disappear, escape, and indulge. What happens in Jericho stays in Jericho. And that's where Rahab comes in, this hero of the faith. It doesn't do us any favors to whitewash this. Rahab's profession and position near the entrance of the city suggests that she might be a temple prostitute. And here's how this works. The people of Jericho worshipped a cult goddess named Ashereth. She was goddess of the moon. And if you were visiting Jericho, you would do a couple of things. You would pay a tax, usually to the temple treasury, to earn her favor. And then you would engage one of her workers. And this would give you a good time in Jericho. Nevertheless, Rahab's profession and position make her a wealth of information. She would know more about the comings and goings of the city than anyone else. She heard men talk, talk about the world outside the city walls, battles won and lost, movements in neighboring kingdoms. The scene that night almost paints itself, doesn't it? Evening firelight flickers on the stone walls, creating shadows and casting figures the shuffle of workers returning from the fields, conversation, jokes, evening aspirations. The smell of harvested flax drying on the rooftops gives the city a dark, earthy fragrance. And in the gathering night, two men, covered except for their faces, strange accents, strange clothes, their eyes never quite making contact with the gatekeeper, silently slip into the stream. Where should we go? The house on the wall, she'll know. Yes, she'll tell us everything we need to know. They didn't catch the casual whisper of one guard to another. Those men, spies, yes, they're spies. Where are they going? To her house. They're staying with her. A duty-bound guard rushes out into the shadows to alert the king that the spies are here. Rahab's door closes and the stage is set. Moments later, Rahab motions quick to the roof under the flax. It's drying. Two guards sit down, a house that they probably know very well. And verse 4 picks up. She said, true, the men came to me, but I don't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on their way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now it's important to understand what's happening here. Rahab is essentially committing treason. She has a very clear command from her king who probably owns her business and therefore owns her. She's got two of his guards in her house with the object of their search hidden under a few stalks of flax 10 feet above their heads. And while her motive isn't clear yet, she's made a courageous decision about who she can trust. The Code of Hamrabi, which is an ancient law code that Jericho abided by, said that if a prostitute housed felons, in her house, and did not alert the king that she should be immediately put to death. This was common knowledge for Rahab. She would have known this. She was a vulnerable woman with no rights, no hope, and no way out. And the situation isn't much more optimistic for God's people. That little detail at the end of verse 11, the gate being shut after the pursuers went out, that's no accident. The writer includes that little detail to give us a sense of the profound predicament these guys are in. So let's put this into perspective. After 40 years of wandering the desert, God's people have put their future in the hand of two spies who are staying with a prostitute, who have failed in their attempt at discretion, and are now trapped inside the city they're supposed to invade. Good start. Well, let's keep going. The scene shifts. From their hiding place under the sheaves of flax, the spies could hear their pursuers leave. Rahab heads up the ladder to the roof. Footsteps, they lie still. The sheaves rustle as they're pulled away, as Rahab exposes the spies. Verse 8 Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came to Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon and Og who you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. We'll come back to that. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death (laughs) no stranger to negotiation Rahab lays it all out there our city is going to fall I'm convinced I hid you from my king tell me God will protect me think how this must have sounded to these spies these two men They came in looking for information and they saw a transformation. They came in looking for a military strategy. Instead, they got theology. I want to focus on what Rahab actually says. Go back to verse 9. It's really incredible. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land will melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And then she talks about everything that God has done. Now we're not told how she knew everything about the Red Sea. It could have been that she learned from soldiers. It could have been pillow talk. It could have been casual conversation, whispered rumors. However she learned about God's dealings with his people, all she knew was that fear of God led to her faith in God. Courage is knowing who to trust. And it's like already a done deal. Did you catch that? He has given you the land. Like this is already done. We already know this is true. And therein lies a great insight about Rahab's faith. Faith is seeing something promised as something done because of the trustworthiness of the one who promised it. Even though the events that she's describing happened 40 years earlier, probably before she was even born, She mentions her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters, no kids considering her profession. That's interesting. It's an indication that she's probably quite young. Even though she probably wasn't alive when God split the sea for Moses and God's people, God's work never goes unnoticed if it's really God's work. But the most interesting thing to me isn't that their hearts melt, but why their hearts melt. Why is she so convinced that God's people will have ultimate victory? Look in verse 11. For, that word right in the middle, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And there it is. That is the pinnacle of her confession and the climax of this little scene. Rahab's courageous choice to act for the spy's benefit secures the future of a people she wasn't a part of based on a few scraps of theology about a God she barely knows and lights the path to a future that she couldn't even imagine. This mustard seed faith, Jesus would talk that way, is all she's got. And as it turns out, it's all she needs. Rahab saw something the rest of her city missed. Courage is knowing who you trust. That word sign, that appears in verse 12. Don't miss that. She says, give me a sign. It's a really cool word in Hebrew. That word sign is the same word that's used when God talks to Noah. And he says, that rainbow, that's a sign that I'm never going to do this again. It's the same word when he talks to Abram. And he says, this is going to be a sign for you. Most importantly, last week, you remember Moses, right? There's blood on the doorposts of people's houses. And he says, that, that's going to be a sign that I'm going to save you. That word actually is much richer than just a sign. It means a covenant, a promise, entering into a relationship with the God of the universe. And here is Rahab. What's she really asking? She's saying, promise me, covenant with me. I know something big is coming and I don't want to miss it. Don't leave me out. Please. And the spy's response is just beautiful. Isn't it our life for yours? That's another way of saying absolutely yes. Courage is deciding who you can trust. Then there's the spy's response. Take a look in verse 15. She let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall and she said to them go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there for 3 days until the pursuers have returned then afterward you may go your way and the men said to her we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that we have that you have made us swear behold when we come into the land you shall tie this scarlet cord that's interesting in a window through which you let us down And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his head and will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who's in your house, his blood will be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to the oath we've made to you. Or you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed and she ties the scarlet cord in her window. From an open window, probably 30 feet above the ground, Rahab whispers further instructions down to the spies to ensure their protection. But before they can head out into the hills, the spies throw up a scarlet cord. Why they had it, we really can't say, which would become a symbol of redemption for Rahab's family. I don't want to press this too far, but it's interesting to me how the color red is used at this point in Israel's history. Passover, remember? Doorposts covered with the blood of a spotless lamb. Scarlet cords were in the temple, or in the tabernacle, connected with worship. The priests, the high priests, had garments that had scarlet cords on them before they would offer something. So the color red is always connected in the Old Testament with atonement and worship and sacrifice and protection. And I mean, I think that's cool. Wait do you see what happens next. Verse 22. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. If you're paying attention, those words sound familiar, don't they? The spies basically parrot back the exact same words that Rahab told them. Their hearts melt But here's what I haven't told you. Those words aren't Rahab's. Or she says them, like they're in the text, and they're a part of her confession. She means them, but they aren't hers, at least not at first. Those words about melting hearts came from a poem that Moses wrote 40 years earlier. Here's what he he says. It's in Exodus 15. The people of Canaan will melt away Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone. Until the people pass by, O oh Lord, until the people you bought pass by. Did you catch that? Sounds familiar. And you have to know that when the spies said those words to Joshua, Joshua's heart leapt. <laughs> Did you say they would melt? It's an odd word choice, but that's just what Moses said would happen. That's just what God said. God is faithful, and he is great, and he is good. Rahab's words were an echo of a song she had never heard before, but they lit a beacon of hope for God's people. God inspires Moses to write a poem about a future conquest he would never see. And then he puts those same words in the mouth of a prostitute. And then later, those words confirm a direction for the movement only God could orchestrate. What's God saying to Joshua? I am faithful. I don't give up my promises. I don't break them. I don't forget about you. I act faithfully because it's who I am. So go where I tell you to go. Follow my paths. Be strong and courageous. I am with you. Which leads me to where we need to go. What should we take from all of this? If the writer of Hebrews commends Rahab for her faith, what does that mean for us? I think there are four things. First, God's plan is not limited to your past. God's plan is not limited to your past. Rahab was a woman with a sketchy past and an unsavory present. Some of you might be hurting from past pains. Decisions you've made that you wish you could erase. And those pains are real, they are deep, and they are paralyzing. And if you're quietly harboring a regret, a mistake, or a secret sin, I want to talk directly to you just for a moment. One of the biggest lies that the enemy can put in your heart is that what you did prevents what God can do. And it's a really big lie. And it's a common lie. It's easy to believe. It's easy to hear. But here's why it's so dangerous. Because it reduces God to a mistake manager rather than a life changer. And here's the beauty of the gospel. There is no sin that you can commit that his grace will not cover. God doesn't want to manage your mistakes. He wants to change your life. And his plan is bigger than your past and his mercy is wider than your mistakes. Rahab's life shows us that your past apart from Christ and your potential in Christ can be as different as night and day. And the key is faith. Where do you place your hope? Is it in your ability to put on a smiley, happy face? Or are you going, no, I'm just as messed up as everybody else, and if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be lost without hope. If you are hidden in Christ, you are not your past. You are not your sin. You are who God says you are. God's plan is not limited to your past. Second thing, God's grace doesn't show favoritism, and neither should we. God's grace doesn't show favoritism, and neither should we. In Jewish culture, there were three things that you did not want to be, a Gentile, a woman, and a slave. And I think it's very interesting that the writer of Hebrews, as his last example of flawed but faithful heroes, chooses someone who is a Gentile, a woman, and a slave. So what's the point? God evaluates worth much differently than we do. It'd be so easy to look at Rahab and go, nope, not a chance. She's what's wrong with society. And here's the beauty of the gospel again. We evaluate worth based on who someone is and God evaluates worth based on who someone can become. Paul would pick up on that theme when he wrote to, the letter, wrote to the church in Galatia where he said this. He said, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? The gospel is the great leveler. Everybody in this room is an image bearer no matter what. Everybody in this room is a sinner, no matter what. Everybody in here is loved by God, no matter what. Everybody in here is capable of being restored by God, no matter what. And that's why racism and sexism and any other pathetic attempt at posturing have no place in the kingdom of God. Never have, never will. The gospel levels everybody. God saves who he wants, how he wants, when he wants, and our obligation is to keep our eyes open for who he's leading us to and follow him in obedience. God's grace does not show favoritism, and neither should we. Third thing, in mission, in mission, lead with Jesus. In mission, lead with Jesus. So I want to talk to you who are living on mission here, okay, or you're trying your best to. You hear us say, we want to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, and you go, okay, I'm in. Show me my everyone, God. Show me. I'm in. Every day, everyone. And he goes, okay, great. How about her? How about him? And you go, mm, I don't know. The spies in Rahab's story give us a wonderful paradigm The people you think could never come to Jesus are usually the people he uses the most. All Rahab needed to put her life in God's hands was one story about what God did, and then boom, life change. So many Christians, we put up needless barriers with social commentary, political issues, and personal preferences at the expense of the mission of God Do you know what those Facebook posts, quick asides, and silly comments tell the watching world? They tell the world, I'd rather share my opinion than share my Jesus. And a world full of desperate Rahabs deserve more than that. They deserve the pure gospel. People don't need to convert to a version of Christianity. They need to convert to Christ. Christ. So practically, what do you do with that? Tell Jesus stories. Tell stories about what he's done, about what he's doing and what he will do. Use his name. Let his name be the dividing line, not my opinion. Don't squander your influence or dilute your voice with passing worldly causes. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Here's the cool thing. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for five decades or five minutes, you've got a Jesus story. He's done something in your life. It doesn't have to be neat and tidy, the best ones never are. It could be just a scrap, just like a small little thing of what he's teaching you, but that could be all that somebody needs to chase down faith. It needs to be true and it needs to be told in love for the one who is listening. And so in mission, lead with Jesus. Fourth, last thing from Rahab's story. We need to realize that God's heart always beats for revival. God's heart always beats for revival. I don't think Joshua the spies or any of God's people expected Rahab. And that's why I love her story so much. Don't you get the sense that she sort of like snuck in there at the last minute? And from a worldly perspective, that's exactly what happened. But from God's perspective, Rahab is a sovereignly adopted daughter brought home. And that's what revival looks like. Revival literally means new breath or new life. But you know what bothers me? If I look in my past and I look around, so many Christians, we don't want revival. We just want to remember. They don't want God to revive something that's dead. They just want to remember something that's past. But revival seeks out dead things and wants to give them new life. You know what the opposite of revival is? Control. Revival isn't God, give me what I enjoy again. It's God, take over. Have your way again. And when you give up control of what you want in favor of what God can do, things get weird and they get awesome because people start coming to Jesus who you'd never expect and God starts moving in places that you'd never expect him to do because it's his plan and not my ideas that make things happen. And if you've ever caught a glimmer of that, you'd never want anything else. If I'm thinking on that for me, it is simultaneously terrifying and also incredibly exciting that there are Rahabs in your neighborhood, in your office, and in your school, and they are on the other side of walls that most Christians do not want to pass through. They are dead and they are hopeful, they are lost and they are looking, they are wanting and they are waiting. God's heart always, always, always beats for revival. So in closing, there's one final detail I haven't told you, actually. Rahab shows up in another place in the New Testament. And like Rahab herself, it's a place that you'd probably never expect. Jesus had a follower named Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Somebody else with a really sketchy past. And a really unsavory presence. And Matthew gave all of that up to follow Jesus. And later, when he wrote about Jesus' life, he wanted to include a list of people. And so here's how Rahab's story ends. Jericho fell, just like God said it would. Rahab was spared, just like he promised. After God's people move into the land, Rahab marries a man named Salmon, and they have a son named Boaz, Boaz was the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king. Rahab is King David's great-great-grandmother. But it gets even better. If you follow the family tree further, it ends with another name, another king, Jesus. Jesus. Rahab is in the family line of the King of Kings. A king who would change history and invite anyone, no matter their past or their present, to trust God with their life. All because Rahab courageously trusted a God she barely knew. Courage is not knowing what to do, courage is deciding who you can trust. I want to pray. God, we want to say that you are trustworthy. We can climb onto you and you can carry the weight of everything that we bear. All the past that we regret, all the pain that's back there, all the present that gives us a little bit of nerves, all the future that gives us anxiety. God, you make us secure (laughs) because you are a rock and you are a shepherd. You are trustworthy. You are good. And so, Father, when we look at everything else that we could occupy our time and our life and our days with, we just want to say that you're better than all of that. We would throw it all down and say, Jesus, you are better. Thank you for sending your son who would provide ultimate atonement and redemption for lost people like us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.